in a world in which Marx never fully developed his critique of Hegel's phenomenology of the spirit. One unarguably small bear, one comparatively large lady, and one regular-sized philosopher. Um, talk. It's Knackers and the Vat. Comrades and gentlefolk, welcome to Knackers, Knackers, Knackers and the Vag, Vag, Vag. One plush toy, one lovely lady exploring what it means to be a gal in the 90s and is it a Tony show? Is it what? An actual professor. He's got more letters after his name than you'd find in your alphabet soup. Professor Raymond Gator perhaps known best for the rather affecting memoir he wrote, oh, I think it was almost 20 years ago now. More than 20 years. I haven't finished introducing you, <laughs> Raymond. More than 20 years, Romulus, my father, which, of course, became a fairly affecting film. We'll talk about that later if you wish. Um, and then The Philosopher's Dog, that rare thing, uh, a, uh, a moderately to best-selling work of actual philosophy. He is a professorial fellow at the University of Melbourne. No, I don't know what that entails at the College of Kings in London. He is Professor Emeritus <laughs> of Moral Philosophy. And let me tell you for nothing comrades on Knackers in the Vag. Remember, Knackers is here. Knackers is here actually for your use, um, a professor, um, because if I go on too long, as you know I do, you wave the bear and that's my, you know, that's my cue. It's sort of like he's Pavlovian bear. Um, that's my cue to shut up. He's fallen over. Uh, he has. He's an adorable bear though. Yeah. Um uh, so, so uh, yes, uh, uh, Emeritus Professor in Moral Philosophy at King's College in London and, as I was saying, a man who, or a human indeed, who is wont to give a very tolerable hug. Don't know about you, but I am an awkward hugger. Don't like it. Think that it's presumptuous most uh, of the time. Sorry. But you are quite good at them. You've got the knack of hugging. I actually just, I, I, resistance is futile to your hugs. Have you always been a hugger? Well, I think so. I think there's no point in hugging unless you give a hug and, uh, you know, putting your, putting your hands just on someone's shoulders and uh, brushing their cheek with a kiss is not a hug. No, you... Um, and, you... and when I'm... Pleased to see somebody, I, I'm, I show it by giving them a hug. You, you do. I mean, you, you, you squeeze. I don't, I, I, don't, I, I don't hug people I'm not pleased to see. You, you, you squeeze the life out of one <laughs> and then somehow squeeze it back in. Yeah. Um, which, you know, let's, let's say that this is the approach to your, your body of works, shall we? Yeah. I was talking to you one day and you told me that thinking is pain and that it's not something that you necessarily enjoy, but it's a compulsion, perhaps an obligation. Is it a civic obligation or do you just have a head full of things? Well, uh, well it's both. Uh, for me, uh, 
it, it it's personal in the sense that I I, I assume uh, it's because I grew up uh, was raised by two men who were very morally intense, uh, and uh, when <clears throat> when I wrote uh, uh, about them in the book, you mentioned Romulus, my father. Uh, I said that uh, I think I said something like this: that I I've never come across uh, in my life. Uh, people who live more passionately um, the belief that nothing matters more than to live life decently. Mm. And I also said that um, when, when, when I was a kid, I, there's, there's a sort of lyrical passage in that book where I describe myself at 11 years old um, driving my father's motorbike uh, in the summer-coloured sort of landscape of central Victoria just wearing shoes and sandals, celebrating a certain kind of freedom that was, I, I say, even then was pretty hard uh, to realise. But, but, but I, I say something like, uh, even, even then I knew that only morality was absolute in the sense that I say uh, that it's the judge, not the servant of our interests. Well, I, of course, as a kid, I couldn't have thought of, that, mm. thought of it that way. Uh, but but thinking back on how it must have appeared to me, uh, that that I think is a reasonable uh, sort of way of way way of putting it. Uh, and so, well, a, a dear friend of mine, uh, Robert Mann, has has said that he's never known anybody whose whose um, whose world is so as it were morality coloured <laughs> as as mine is. Uh, so a lot of a lot of my life I've been thinking about about what morality is and what kind of place it can have. And not morality, there are different moralities and that um, people have different ideas about what role they should have in one's mm -hmm. life. So, for example, when I was uh, in the period when I wrote my first book, uh, Good and Evil and Absolute Conception, the fashion in moral philosophy was to condescend to moral intensity. Uh, with a kind of cool urbanity, and um, I uh, and, and uh, I would have found distasteful the kind of intensity that my father and his friend Horace showed to the world, or that Plato had, or that Socrates had, or that Wittgenstein had, and I think that had the effect on me of writing in a way that I I I, I could I feel almost that I could subtitle all my writings as being against urbanity, mm. uh, a kind of cool distaste for any kind of intensity. Well, you must hate this era because we've had about 30 years of mocking detachment and to be sincere, not sentimental, you're never sentimental, and to feel profoundly attached to ideas, one's own thoughts, to want to engage others with thoughts, which is something many of you do, that at some point this became, in Australian culture and, 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 and Western culture, I guess, more broadly, uh, ridiculous? Have you noticed that over the uh, last yeah, well, 30 I, to 40 years? Well, yeah, well, I have. And because, I mean, the... Philosophers are generally, even though they they might think they are, they're not generally people who introduce entirely new. It's certainly not entirely new radical ideas into the world. 
Okay, no, I want you to I want you to define the way uh well you use radical. Yeah, please. okay. I, 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 well in in the sense of the old sense of going to the roots of yeah. things. Seizing but, but, the root with both hands. Yeah, yeah. But 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 uh uh, before that, let me let me uh, explain that while while that has been, I mean, what you describe is is, is true, but what has really surprised me uh, is the uh, success of Romulus, my father, amongst young people, because mm. I would never have predicted it, and uh, occasionally um, uh, I, I I go to schools where the, where it's still being studied and talk to kids. Uh, and and I, I am just constantly both surprised and gratified. Well, it's a book that, that, that rips that, one's guts out. Well, okay, but it's it's a book. Of, but but when I when 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 I say to the teachers and and sometimes to the to the students themselves, how how come I'm really surprised? I think, this no, is come a, on, don't you you know why, right? It's sort of like, um, you know, it's not that you're the Bernie Sanders of the filial bond or anything like that. I mean, you're talking very directly uh, about being a kid. You're talking about the acquisition of identity, the realisation that adults are imperfect, God's, you know, falling all around you. Why would that not resonate with kids? If I'd read it... uh, Because the God's falling all around. Well, it's uh, uh, very morally intense. And it's not as though the kids are taking great pleasure in the fact that these morally intense people, whom their teachers sometimes describe as being, being, uh, uh, you know, uh, rather rigid in their principles. Mm. It's not as though the kids are taking great delight in their fall. Uh, uh, So, so... So when when I say, well, how 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 is it that that a, a book that celebrates it's not a biography, for for, for example, it, it it's it it came out of a eulogy. It has the same tone of the eulogy that from which it came. It's a celebration. It poured out of you, didn't it? Yeah, it poured it poured out of me in three weeks, really. Uh, so, but but it it it's it uh, it's not. I don't th- I don't think of it as a biography because I think if it were a biography, I would have had to be much more psychologically probing. Of mm. my father, of all the people in it, which I had no interest in doing, uh, and uh, I, when I wrote it, I thought of it as as a kind of, um, I mean, I mean, this might sound pretentious, a kind of tragic poem. I mean, poem in the old sense in which you know the Greeks Greeks used it, because I, I thought of it as I, I I hoped in the writing of it to show the same calm pity for the suffering that I was describing uh, as I think tragedy as a genre does. Mm-hmm. I think that's what distinguishes tragedy as a genre. Uh, and I think that's why when I first went to university, it was the literary form that attracted me me most. Uh, Have you always had a, a clear memory of being a much younger person? Uh, well, it, uh, some things and, and some not. I mean, a, lo- a lot of people have commented on uh, or have asked, how come you have such a good memory of what happened in... And in fact, there's not much. It's a book of, yeah. of 30,000 words, so you don't have to remember all that much. Uh, but um, if, if, you're asking, if you're asking me, uh, are they clear memories in the sense that I can vouch for their accuracy? Oh, no, 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 I don't mean that. That's not how memory no, works. No. Um, I, I guess w- w- um, 
it, it occurs to me, and the only reason I have the advantage or impediment or whatever it is of um, coming to remember uh, my own childhood or early life is, you know, and I don't really start to remember until, you know, about the time of the acquisition of language, which I think is the case with most people. Most people don't remember much um, before 18 months old. I think that that's usually the earliest memory of people um, that can be identified. But it's only through, you know, hours and hours of psychology that I can remember it all. Um, And in acquiring uh, those memories and and in examining them in the context of my life, which, unless I wrote a beautiful book like yours, is of no interest to anybody, it struck me that adults forget how complex they once were. And I think that's probably why littler ones like it, because it shows them in their many parts. I mean, they're curious beasts, right? There's a lot going on in there. And when any work acknowledges the conflict inside a child or a young adolescent, children and young adolescents generally respond, no? Uh, Well, they have. Uh, Well, I'm sure there are uh, uh, students who ever regretted having to read the book because it was on the uh, syllabus, but... um, but, but but to go back to, to what made me uh, say that I, I was very grateful that it had been received in this way by so many young people was because it seemed, it, it surprised me because it seemed so much against the spirit of the times, which is a, yeah. which as you uh, say is, is, is imparted. It's, it's not just a cool urbanity actually, it's, it's also a debunking spirit. And it's, um, I mean, I noticed in the 1990s, which was the time of the bloom of my youth, that, you know, it was a very extreme detachment, you know, and you could see this in philosophy as well. You know, people were kind of picking things up with a pair of tongs and looking at them yeah. at, a, at a distance. Either that or taking irony as the default mode of response to anything. And, and this has morphed into sentimentality. I don't think that people have put down the tongs. I don't think that they're looking at at things any more closely. But what is required of one is a sort of a performance of passion, you know. Um, and you see this in in politics. And uh, for example, uh, the other day I was on the behalf of my union a delegate at the Victorian Parliament House. And the uh, order of the day was to, very broad brief, stop gendered violence at work. Um, It's difficult to decode the official union messages that we got that we were asked to relay, but I was talking to a a Labor representative in the other house and she started saying, you know, we were talking to her about our everyday concerns as workers and how secure work would be better and if, um, you know, WorkSafe and similar programs could consider sexual harassment as a form of injury in extreme cases and such like. And she starts saying, you don't need to tell me, 39 dead women, 39 dead women. 
um, thus far this year. And I know that there were in that week 39 dead women and probably 100 dead men. There were by the middle of the year about, you know, 120 homicides. Um, but it struck me that her detachment from what we were actually asking was it took the form of like real sincerity and very extreme, there's a state of emergency and people are dying. And so I see that, is this making any sense at all to you, Ray? I mean, I've just noticed this, 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 this change from absolute naked, ironic detachment to another form of detachment, which, and this is just in everyday life, you know, not philosophy, but another form of detachment which chooses either extreme hate uh, and cartoonish condescension, such as we see in, you know, your Steve Bannon, Donald Trump acolytes or your Pauline Hansons, etc., or this very kind of like social justice talk where, you know, you care more deeply than anyone else in history ever has. And I know that the emotions are felt as real, but I remember talking. Well, I, I, I think that's partly because um, pe people are not educated in, in the development of a kind of critical sensibility where... Uh, uh, in in which feeling and thought are just inseparable, and and um, so uh, I, I've noticed, uh, for example, how how common how how often people take uh, the concept of sentimentality to refer simply to feeling, right? Mm. Whereas if you use it as a critical concept that says that that, that it's it's a form of it it's it's a form of the false. Right, and not not in the sense of being insincere. So, let me just try to be concrete about this. When yeah. to go back to Roman as my father, when I was writing Roman as my father, and what mattered most to me was to try to be truthful. Uh, and uh, it was easy to it, it was easy to know what it, what it, what it is to do that when f facts are at issue because you read letters or you get documents or you ask people and so on. You may not get it right, but you know what to do to try to get it right. But what because it was such a dramatic story, uh, it 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 mattered to me very much that I resist a tendency to pathos or to yeah. sentimentality. Uh, Especially to pathos, and uh, now I, I I don't mean by that that I had to resist get there being feeling in the writing. I thought of these as forms of the false. That in an effort to be truthful, you these undermined that effort to see things as they are. Yeah, well, I mean, as you're, opposed you're, you're to saying sentimentality pathos. is just a, a form of detachment. It's a form well, of well, 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 no, well, it's 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 uh, it's an attachment from reality in service to a certain kind of. Yeah. Iris Murdoch has a good expression because he calls talks the fat relentless ego, which which takes in the, in, in this case in the form of sen sentimentality takes great self referring pleasure in its own sweet state of, of, of you know of of a feeling about something. I mean, you know, pe people who who are so enchanted by their own 
their own compassion, for example, who start weeping not about what, what they're what 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 they're supposed to be talking about, but weeping at the own sort of self indulgent pleasure of seeing themselves weeping. So so but uh, but so so if you have a very narrow conception of reason and 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 uh, a conception of reason that thinks emotion is always a threat to reason, mm. but you haven't any serious conception of how these might be integrated. I mean, there are old expressions like an understand, understanding, the emphasis is understanding of the heart. It's not just the heart being moved to emotion. It means this is a form of understanding in which feeling and thought have to be combined. But, uh, but, uh, it, and, Your and, old Plato and, mate said something like that, didn't he? Well, you know, well, well, well uh, Plato thought that, and and so so did Aristotle. But and 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 lots of people have, and it used to be thought that an education in literature, for example, would be an education in a kind of a sense sensibility that knew how to pick out sentiment, sentimentality, pathos, and so on. Well, I and, mean, but we're we're talking about an imaginary time where everybody was educated well which never took well, place but, but yeah well the trouble with the time then when this happened it, it was a, a kind of apotheosis in levisite literary criticism but it became very very precious and i i you know i i don't i, I don't pretend to be a kind of historian of ideas but but a levisite education into literary criticism was was intended to make you have a good ear for anything that rang emotionally false. Hmm. But instead it became a way for young students to think how precious they are and how vulgar other pe people were. And so yeah. it was very – and Levis himself was very dogmatic and I so mean, I, I, I think, became much discredited. Yeah. But we now have a gap, right? So if I – a gap in our education where people don't anymore have a kind of even literacy – to characterise a sensibility in which they can be self-critical about their own sincerity. Well, I mean, that in itself is a form of education. Um, one of the reasons I think that you and I have a little to say to each other is that we're both fairly demanding of others and we both believe despite our differences in thinking that if anyone applies themselves to the idea and interrogates the idea, then they can't fail to be significantly moved and that there are texts and thoughts so rich that they do put everyone in motion and this is why you do the Wednesday lecture series every year at the University of Melbourne, because this is very much an attempt to talk with a popular and broad audience, but make them think hard. Yeah, that, that's been uh, the, 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 the assumption behind the lecture theater, uh, the, the series was, was that. Which is nearly 20 years old. Yeah, yeah, yeah it'll be. Twenty yes, nineteen nineteen next year, which I'm astonished <laughs> that it survived that long, especially since the Wheeler Centre puts on something every night, and 
But, but, but the assumption behind it was that if you ask people seriously to think and, and you don't in any way condescend to them and you make it clear that if it's hard, then insofar as it's being possible for you, it's not hard because you've made it obscure. It's hard because it's hard. And of course, you have to be open to the accusation that look, uh, it's a lot harder than it need be because you've been so obscure <laughs> about it. But the, but but the point but the point is, the assumption is that there are some things you some things you have to read. For example, two or three it's two or three times, uh, and you shouldn't assume that if you read if you have to read it two or three times that that's the fault of the author. It may. Uh, and it, it needn't be because it's in jargon either. It can be in the simplest English prose, but the thought can be hard, mm. and especially philosophical thought, which people are, are really not 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 used to. Wittgenstein said that um, philosophers you should greet one another by saying, "Take your time," and that the, the it, with with people who are interested in ideas at all. Uh, there's a tendency to to go very very quickly, and 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 hard thinking always stops people and says, "Come on, this is, I, I I don't follow. Why? How did you get from here to there? How from the here to there?" And this is not pedantry; it's a genuine attempt to say, uh, "Maybe maybe it does. This thought doesn't follow from that." Hmm. But 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 uh, well, that too is kind of elementary about the nature of thinking. And when I was a, a schoolboy, it used to be called clear thinking, and that's not taught anymore. But and philosophers uh, uh, pride themselves on being good at that. And the philosophers in the analytical tradition, that is in, mostly in the English-speaking world, are are good at it. But there's something that they're not good at, which is having an ear for tone. And the kind of sensibility that I was describing before, where because it's it's usually not because uh, you know some charismatic figure has presented in a bad argument that you end up some charismatic speaker, for example, really eloquent. You end up at you end up being completely overtaken by mm. that person, yeah. and when you regret coming to believe what you believed then, it's usually not because they made faults in their reasoning. Mm. It's because they were kitsch or you, you you went in for the kitsch or you went in for the sentimentality. You didn't have an ear for what ring. That's the sensibility we, we, we're, we're losing, which is why it's so easy for people to move, as it were, from the position you described that they're initially in, which is one of a kind of ironic and perhaps even sometimes cynical detachment yeah. to an uncritical sense of their own sentimentality. So do you find, uh, perhaps say that there's a big, you know, civic event um, by one of, you know, those endless screens that choke our senses and there are many people that you know who are deeply moved by something and say, finally now, ah, oh, the ecstasy of communication, something really happened, something has really changed, and you feel yourself maybe unmoved? Does that happen to you? Yeah, it does. Uh, um, but but it, that, that's, that's in part because um, perhaps just idiosyncratic things about me, I'm, I'm, I'm very resistant to... Uh, 
political ecstasy at demonstrations mm. or those sorts of things because when I, I think unjustly, uh, but I, I tend to think when there's a crowd, there's a mob. Or, 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 you know, there will be a mob in two minutes' time. I have observed myself, though, euphoria at some demonstrations that I think is quite real and and necessary as well. There's been a few – I recently read something from um, the um, feministas in Argentina campaigning for reproductive rights, and there's a beautiful manifesto where they talk about rage and euphoria, and I'll send it to you. It captures for me the euphoria that I've seen and don't necessarily participate in because maybe you and I have that same revulsion, you know, the sort of Groucho Marxist thing. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want no, to be a part no. of any club that would have me as a member. Well, it's true. I, I mean, for example, when I became a mountain climber, I didn't join a mountaineering club. I just bought a rope, a book, and some friends, <laughs> and then buy the friends yeah. and, and went because I. But uh, so I think in my own case, that's extreme. But yeah, it's extreme uh, with me. I try to fight against uh, it because I I believe in popular intelligence, in mass intelligence, very much. I wasn't alive in May of 1968, but the accounts that I read and the things that I've seen on screen make me believe that 10, 15 million people can all come together and form within weeks different ways of doing things and different ways of being, which reminds me here on Knackers and the Vag, the Vag is me, our guest. I'm the Knacker. <laughs> You're not Knackers, this is Knackers the Bear, is uh, Ray Gator, Professor Raymond Gator. Speaking of May 1968, as you would well know, um, I might put some stuff for you in the show notes if you don't know what happened in Paris um, May 1968. I've written a few things on it. Um, I'll send you some links. It was a crazy time of a general strike. Actually, there was all sorts of things happening in the world in that period, including the assassination of Dr. King, the Tet Offensive in Vietnam, um, you know, peasant armies rising up, black power here in Australia and the USA. But in Paris, uh, that's where a lot of Western attention focuses. And you'd recognise some of the images if you ever saw them because, of course, now they've been co-opted for sassy advertising campaigns. But it really was quite something, and the world very nearly changed, but didn't, thanks in part to the Conservatives and in other part to the Soviet Union. But there was all these philosophers um, who were sort of born in that era. Your your Derrida's, I know you don't think much of him, and I understand Uh, that. No, I'm not. I believe even, you know, Slavoj Žižek was there 17 or 18. Jacques Lacan, the famous psychoanalyst, gave um, free seminars in the big other on the streets, so the story goes. Guy Debord, um, uh, you know, baby feminists like um, Lucira Garay, a um, whole lot of people. I'm sure there's some names you can fill in. There was this guy called Paul Virilio. Um, today we use the word theorist. You know the word 
to properly mean philosopher. Why do we call philosophy theory these days? Uh, well, uh, I don't think we should. No. I don't either. I, uh, I, 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 I mean, I think of it, I, I, well, the paradigm of theory is in the sciences. And uh, then what's fundamental to theory as it is in science is, well, there's an idea in science that the best theory is one that explains a phenomena with least assumptions. But that presupposes there's a, there's an agreement about the phenomena. Mm. Uh, and and, and there, is in, there is in in the sciences. You know, there, there are some things that are thought to be a little bit on the outside and things and, and so on, but there's general agreement about what needs to be explained. Yeah, and, and this what, is the and basis what only from, a crackpot would take seriously. Uh, this is the basis from yeah. which we proceed. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you well, don't get that in philosophy. You don't get that in philosophy. You, I mean, you, 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 you get the illusion of it when, when for some reason or other, there's a, just contingently there happens to be agreement. Right, and then that the fashion. Well, it's uncharitable to call it mm. just fashion, but anyway, it changes. Uh, uh, as as I can't remember who said it once, but it says it's, said, "Look, it's not as though this was ever proven to be false. It's just that all the all the people who believed died." And so, and, and I'm old enough to have seen this happen yes. in philosophy. Uh, and it's not as though, uh, and, you know, you you could point to anywhere where there was where. Competent practitioners of the discipline could agree. Yes, this is this is the point where there was a justified rejection of what had gone on in the. I mean, rejection justified mm. by reason. It wasn't a younger, a certain group of younger people became fashionable and uh, took off, and that's it. But some of those, um, well, you know, Michel Foucault. Uh, you can't deny his importance. <laughs> well, well, it's not a question of importance. Philosophers can, be, philosophers can be very important, but it doesn't follow, therefore, that they're theorists. Yeah, yeah. Right? Uh, putting up a theory that… Uh, no, I agree. But, but, but it, it, it is true that a, a lot of philosophers do think it's their task, in, including in moral philosophy, mm. to construct a theory. Uh, and I uh, and and there's a controversy within moral philosophy as to whether theory is what one should be looking for, mm. and I think this is a deep mistake. I mean, it's a deep mistake to be right. looking for theory. So let's agree to call philosophy by its true name. Um, many of uh, the famous people from who are identified with Paris in May 1968, and you, you'd agree, I'm sure, that there were lots of people who went on to become quite something um, who were involved in that particular struggle. Uh, the universities were opening up and became actually more open due to the activism of largely French workers, also French intellectuals. One of those was Paul Virilio. I read recently that he died. Um, his daughter uh, left a little time before making the announcement and he died in Paris, I think at home after a cardiac arrest at 86. Now, in 1995, when I had my first ever 28K modem and a home internet connection, do you remember those things that yeah. went, yeah. <laughs> um, I was messing about on the internet and I found some articles by this chap, Paul Virilio. And then I uh, found that he'd 
written a book which was considered, you know, significant and hard to pin down in terms of what tradition was it um, called Speed and Politics. And it's like some theory he calls uh, or some philosophy, sorry, he calls dramology. But it's kind of interesting because he's talking about the speed of technology and the force of technology and the and the glitch that is inherent in every piece of technology. You know, um, what Silicon Valley calls um, uh, um, a feature, you know, he would say a glitch and he's sort of really famous for knowing um, the shipwreck does not become possible until the invention of the ship, you know, and the, the train wreck doesn't become uh, possible until the invention of the train. And I remember in 1995 reading this thing which seemed like crazy at the time, which was about the future uh, and the consequences of the internet with which he was now engaged as a thinker. Um, and he said, you know, from 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 many screens, we we will be asphyxiated. Um, the only information that appears is, as true is that which will which relies on its other disinformation, and we will not seem to abandon logic, but we will be asphyxiated nonetheless. And I thought, gee. It sounds like the 2016 election uh, in, the, in the USA, like this whole idea of like disinformation needing to exist in order that we, the masses, believe certain things to be true. And um, so I was reconsidering this guy that I hadn't read for many years and looking at some of this old stuff again after more than 20 years and thinking, He's really worth writing about. And in one of my outlets, I wrote um, a, a short obituary for a gentleman who had not otherwise been covered in in local press. And um, it's nice, you know, got a nice, very nice lady I know who works at the AFR said, oh, thanks for that. You know, I've been reading about him. He's very fascinating, blah, blah, blah. Interesting guy. You know, I'm not going to say that, you know, he was highly influential in my development or whatever. My point is that this was a, a, a white European male thinker working very much within that tradition, very Parisian. And the same day, and I know you'll have something to say about this, I saw that uh, the Senator Pauline Hansen had said in the Senate that there had been attacks on Western civilization. She didn't name what they were, but her speech was very obviously borrowed from that of the, uh, the Ramsey Centre, which also talk about attacks on Western civilization. And, of course, they're, you know, at the time of us recording, they're currently negotiating with the University of Sydney to have a course in what one of its board members Tony Abbott, former Australian Prime Minister, describes as what was that thing that he wrote in Quadrant? Did you see it? Where I do, I've, I've heard a lot about it. But yeah, I mean, I, it's just I, it's pish, um, right? But yeah. he says the the unique thing about our centre is that this is not just a course. Like I'm not, I'm quoting from memory, so it's all going to be wrong. This is not just a course about Western civilization, but it's a course in favour of it, which, of course, as you know, is like absolutely academic. You always lead your students to one conclusion, yeah. right? And I just it just struck me 
These people who routinely defend Western civilization actually don't give a shit about it. Has that thought occurred to you? Yeah, but, but uh, there was, let's, let's go back to the okay. point about um, disinformation. Without disinformation, then there wouldn't be uh, information. Th- in information, or I think you said truth. Was that meant to be analogous to uh, without trains, there couldn't be a train wreck? Yes, because uh, rather than the train, um, which was already invented by the time he was born, which was I think you know nineteen. Uh, 30 thereabouts. Um, uh, so he was looking at the internet and considering what it meant. He was he was famous for actually not going on the internet but making people print things out for him because he didn't want to be affected um, and receiving internet pages by fax, which is quite funny. Um, but so he wanted to, before his death, he was working on this thing called the Museum of the Accident. So this was really his obsession, like, um, or his work rather, um, his philosophy, like trying to um, trace um, and 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 predict uh, accidents caused by technology. That very quickly, the interesting story that um, I read about him years ago on a website called C C Theory. I'm sure it's still up. Um, he talks about in interview being quite a little boy in France. And hearing on the radio that the German troops were approaching his town. And a few minutes later, he hears the sound of the boots, of the troops. And this is something he counts as a threshold experience. Mm. Like there was so little time between this electronic medium telling me that a thing was happening and it actually happening. And then he says, he makes this great proclamation very often in interview he says war was my university and for the rest of his life he observed um things that could happen at a you know five or ten minute interval to war happening in real time and life happening in real time and so his work was kind of a collection of accounting for train accidents shipwrecks um the accidents um, provoked by television, and then the accidents that he saw may be the cause of the internet and a life lived among multiple screens, but not in a sentimental way, not, oh, the children are spending too much time on screen and they don't, it's just like, what will this do to the world? And um, his predictions were fairly keen. I mean, he's basically talking about, you know, the machine of fake news as it exists in the present, which is more than the propaganda of the past. Do you not agree? Yeah, 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 I agree. Like it's not it's not just telling lies, is it? It's more than that. Um, and so, you know, for all these reasons, um, I was, you know, keen to just spend a few hours revisiting him and I remember, yeah, you were a good thinker. You were also one of the last intellectuals of 1968 to die and the fact that this news came to me on the same day that our Australian newspapers are full of people who claim to defend Western thought, uh-huh. you know, claim to defend, like, what's the foundation of, of you know, they, when they say Western, they're really talking about the time from the Enlightenment. And, like, so much is founded in philosophy. It's a, it's a pillar. And so 
what are they talking about when they talk about Western thought, these conservative people? Well, look, um, I, don't, I don't think – it depends who you mean by conservative people. But if, if you're oh, Abbott, thinking, Howard. Well, they're, they're, they're not worth thinking about, I mean, really. I mean, it's, it's, it's part of a, a, a mindless culture war. Uh, by people who don't have enough. Do you really think that they're not worth thinking about? Like, yeah, uh, well, I think I think there's something worth thinking about. Uh, about, I remember once saying to somebody, uh, a, a Pakistani Muslim friend of mine, "Look, I'm a child of the West," and she said, "Well, well exactly. What does that mean?" But uh, but I, and it was a fair question. But uh, but it's it, it's not as though there was nothing. Uh, uh, there, it's not as though I had no reason whatsoever to say that. Uh, there are. Uh, well, just take something elementary like um, it. It. I have all the cultural resources available: painting, literature, m- music, to try to understand Christianity. Let's say, and I still find it very difficult to understand. Mm. Uh, and for that reason, I. I, I feel. It's a kind of humility for me when somebody says, why don't you read a bit more Buddhism, right, for example, to say, well, I don't have those resources. And generally when I say to people who say that to me, when I do read about it and uh, and when I hear things, as I've just heard from you, I'm not inclined to do it, right, because... The, the kind of detachment that you're talking about, I find inhuman. Yeah. But it, it, and there are in lots of inhuman forms of that in what are recognizably no. Christian traditions. Well, you and, and I do and very so, different work. Yeah. So, like so, my, any, what I do, short form, you know, cheap and easy, it's an account of the present. And I try to sort of build my own theoretical framework over time so I can actually offer people something that makes. A little bit of sense and something that is a bit rich for them. And you um, have made ideas, thoughts, philosophy, not theory or work, and also acts of creation such as Romulus, my father, that makes people like me who consider themselves professionally creative fucking jealous. Um, <laughs> Look, I, I, um, and, I, 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 you know, I, I don't mix. Uh, well, I, I hardly mix at all. Uh, with people who were, and I don't know if they still are described as working class, uh, but except when... No, I'm working class, do you? Uh, you're all working class. Of course I'm working class. Well, what else am I? Well... I've it, got no assets. <laughs> I've got no job. <laughs> but, but my, look, my, my, my uh, half-sister, my, my sister... I need to give uh, you a Marxist is, definition is, of working is, class. Is, anyway, look... Your half-sister... Uh, is 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 that she 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 works as a, um, uh, as a, a clerical job in a, a hospital and, and uh, but I when I think that, and because well I should tell the listener that um, when when my mother killed herself uh, my two, two half sisters were adopted or were sent to a home. My father couldn't uh, take them because he was single, and uh, so anyway. And then they were adopted, mm-hmm. and I didn't. Uh, that was um, would have been about nineteen sixty. They were adopted, something like that. And I 
found them again uh, in the 80s, sometime yeah. 83, 84. And, and, and so I see a lot. And so I'm, I'm, and I'm very close. So it's, it's not as, you know, like, it's not like someone who comes to the house to, and we talk a bit about the electricity or something, you know, a, a tradesperson. But when I think of the differences between me and her, it, it's it's not that I live as a, a, a well-to-do middle-class life and about you know have a good house and, and all that sort of thing. What 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 feels to me diff, really a, a big difference between us uh, is that is 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 that I can't imagine my life really. Uh, without Plato or Bach or Kierkegaard. It's as though I live actually in a, in a very extended, continuous present. Uh, and I, I think for anybody who's, who's, who's grown to love great, great works of their tradition, and these people would be thought of as part of the Western tradition mm. or the Western... Of course. Uh, uh, but but there's no such thing as the Western tradition. There are a lot of traditions within. Yeah, of course. Uh, that that's uh, and very conflicting. Tradition. But 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 it it's that that I feel in a way uh, separates. Well, separates is not the right word. But when but I, I I feel this is not something I can share with her. But it's so important to my life. And and it's from there from there that I speak. And when somebody says to me, look. You're a seventy-two-year-old white man. Uh, it, uh, grew up in an analytical tradition in philosophy, etc. Describe it how you will. I say, okay, that's what I am. From the from it, that's the only place from where I can speak. So let's talk now. Mm. Yes, let's talk. Yeah. That's all we can yeah, do. Yeah, absolutely. But I just wanted to know because I was saying, you know, I was talking about a place like the Ramsey Centre, which is, you know, a ruling class product marketed to the ruling class of the future by the ruling class. Um, there's nothing working class about it. So why are we talking about the working class? Is it your view that it's the working class that are mo mo more susceptible to these claims about Western civilization? No, 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 no. no, no, no I was just wondering no, where no. the leap came no, from. No, no, the, the, the leap was, um, I mean, I don't, I, I, I would have been astonished if ANU had have accepted the they were pretty close the Ramsey. Well, I, I and think, now Sydney's talking. I, well, well, it, I, I, well, I don't know all the de de details of it, but but I, 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 my impression is this may be just factually wrong. My impression is once they once they realise uh, that uh, the, the the you know the Ram the people running the thing wanted to con have a fair say. In, in appointments, and we're going to sit in on classes and so on. I mean, I mean, this is the great irony. Here are the people defending what they think to be the traditional university mm. against uh, various kinds of attacks on free speech, and here they were proposing what would have been the most extraordinary uh, denial of, of academic freedom. That yeah. the, uh, so that's why I can't take it seriously, and I assume... I know, I know but I mean, I feel... Um... I feel so. I mean, I'm very much inclined to do that as well, and have been inclined to do that, and say, you know, for many years, why engage with the ultra reactionaries? Um, you know, why engage with the the toddler fascists? They have nothing to say. 
why counter their argument. But you would probably agree that now is a time of great anomie. <laughs> um, we do not have the social norms that keep the society together. Um, the market has impacted on too many lives and people are coerced into cultish thinking rather than having some kind of civic idea, some kind of national pride. Young people, I understand from a close friend of mine who's an international relations scholar that when surveyed um, young people in the West will name their national identity second or third down the list, Um, their gender, their ethnic heritage, their sexuality are all above that. Um, But then again, that's not the same for everybody. And, you know, my own sister, she wears that butcher's apron of a flag on herself on Invasion Day. (laughs) I hope she doesn't hear this. But, (laughs) I mean, it's just, I mean, which is beyond me. You know, why would she choose to sort of elevate invasion, land seizure and and, and massacre and, and, you you know, and 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 so on, but the the thing about the present is that I feel a sense of desperation, um, and I feel probably for the first time in my life, and I don't think I'm imagining it because I've never lived through a Great Depression. I've never lived through a war. I never really lived through the Cold War. I lived through real-time wars that didn't seem real because they took place in real time. And this is the first time I feel that I'm surrounded by chaos and it's the first time I see great vulnerability and I see people going on paleo diets and ketogenic diets and finding refuge in like pseudo-magical science. Yeah, well, I think this is very worrying. And finding refuge in, in extreme nativism. Uh, finding refuge in being so-called internet trolls um, and just making these really um, kind of like essentialist statements of like the the problem with this country today or the problem with you people is. And it seems to me that there is in the present a great grappling um, by people for a way to explain the present and for me to ignore increasingly powerful voices seems oh, well, I'm negligent. Not, well, I'm, not, I'm not saying you uh, ignore powerful ignore powerful voices, but um, th- that's a different matter. Well, it depends what those powerful voices are saying. So, so people like uh, Pauline Hanson. And Abbott have had a certain power which mm. needs to be recognised. It doesn't mean that one has to listen to them when they talk about Western civilization. Yeah, I know. Well, I mean, what, what one has to meet is is what it is that they're using this as a stick to beat someone with. Yeah. And in, in, in the case of Pauline Hanson, you're quite right, she wouldn't have a clue what Western civilization is. But this, But really this is just part of our anti-Muslim thing. Yeah, which used this, to be an anti- that, And that's what has to be taken seriously. Yeah. I mean, she is like pure disinformation herself. Like she, um, I mean, for a start, she functions in this nation as 
the crude, vulgar, working-class white racist that makes all the racists in government look like the better option. So that's a really significant part of her function. Like she is the repulsive other that is like, you like Adorno, don't you? Yeah, well, up to a point. Yeah. um, So in uh, the essay, um, um, oh, the one about the stars, the one about the stars, um, uh, um, the horoscope um, column in the Los Angeles Times, and he talks about Hitler and because he was there. And, you know, he talks about him being a figure um, that was both um, humorous, you know, like uh, you could deride him and heroic. Uh, like he said, sort of like he was a mixture between, you know, King Kong and the guy down the road um, or, you know, like a, yeah, I think he said a suburban hairdresser and King Kong. So, like, ridiculous. But, you know, well, what happened? Um and I don't know. I mean, sometimes I feel that. Yeah, well, but that, I, but I agree with that. I mean, one can say the same about Trump, and and one can say the same about Peter Dutton, who almost became our prime minister, and Marie Le Pen, and and, 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 so and alternative for Deutschland, yeah, so and all I'm, the Scandinavian I, I, fascists. Yeah, I'm not denying for a minute that all this has to be taken very seriously, and and I think it's also connected with deep strains of irrationality in the culture. That, are, that 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 show themselves in you know the, uh, people being gullible about alternative of this alternative yeah. of that, uh, and and it it it's also also true that that uh, Weimar Germany was was full of people reading their futures in teacups and going to astrologers and all that and satirical uh, comedy and yeah uh, that, the that, cab- do you know the great Peter Cook quote no. Um, so, you know, he was pretty funny, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Pete and Dodd. Yeah, yeah. I mean, disgusting. Yeah, but do you yeah. like Derek and Clive? Yeah, or? Yeah, yeah. They're disgusting, right? They were just, they outpunk rocked all the punks. They were so foul. If you've not ever heard Derek and Clive, don't. You'll be sick. It's still sickening 40 years later. So, Peter Cook, this very funny man, for whom uh, the, the bar um, at the comedy festival every year in Melbourne is named, which is a nice thing. Um, he was opening a club in the 1960s in London called The Establishment um, and he was asked by a journalist uh, what sort of comedy, what sort of entertainment uh, he planned to present there. And he said, we will be inspired by uh, the Berlin cabaret of the Weimar Republic in the 1930s which did so very, very much to stop Hitler and end the outbreak of the Second World War. <laughs> it's quite a famous quote. People love to quote it. And, um, you know, I think it's um, a very realistic um, uh, depiction of the present because we have so many, you know, comedy shows making fun of power and it just seems to enlarge power. Anyway, I'm sorry. Go on. Well, to go back to the disinformation point, I mean, what, uh, th- this may not at all be what you had in mind, but um, it certainly seems to be uh, um, a, mi- a minor consolation of Trump's victory that um, peep, uh, that, that uh, he's, he's restored uh, the concept of, of fact, uh, as it were, to, to the language of journalists. Uh, that, I mean... Uh, huh. uh, 
how, how seriously, I'm not sure. But it, but one of the things that had struck me was that in, it was in fact a, a kind of a left liberal intelligentsia that, that rediscovered facts and rediscovered the concept of truth. They after, rediscovered uh, the concept. They uh, did never. They never uncovered facts. I mean, the entire may, reporting on the Mueller investigation is based on. Speculation. Okay, but well, okay, but uh, but uh, but um, Russia lost Trump the but, election, please. Yeah, but but at, at, at least the recovery of a concept matters. I mean, I mean, you know, worse worse than in worse than uh, people worse than in. I was going to say worse than injustice. This is not true, but much worse than cynicism or disillusionment about justice, for example, is, see, is a complete loss of the concept you see, of justice. You see, Ray, this happens on both sides, which is why increasingly I find, well, I have to listen to what the right is saying. And, I, and if somebody is, you know, ultra-reactionary and talks to me like the white person I am, you know, just out at the pub or whatever, I will listen because I want to work out what their ideas are, because as simple as they are, they do morph. And I do, you know, I have read Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life, and the way he weaponizes or instrumentalizes philosophy, psychology, um, evolutionary biology, and a bunch of shit um, is often the way that the liberal left do as well. So he has these claims to truth and some of the things he says are true and they have their claims to truth and some of the things they say are true. But so you and I were talking earlier when we were having a little bit of lunch about your quest to define the battleground between ideas. Well, well. Uh and. You know, what I mean is like say a really great example is any uh, Australian Broadcasting Corporation panel show you can name because they say they have balance but what they actually have is two views um, that are arguing within very narrow parameters and anybody who, um, I mean, have you ever been on Q&A? Yeah. Did you get a fair go or did you just confuse the shit out of them? Uh, well, I uh, well, I didn't think I didn't get a fair go, um, but um, well, I do, I I they I, well they they, they uh, certainly haven't invited me back, so I I suspect I yeah, might I, mean, have, is, I might you, have you know it's but, not it's not as I've been dying to get back, but uh, but that might be a sign that they, I mean it's that, ridiculous. I mean you and man, like you know you're the two guys. Like why aren't you on? Um, but, um, you but, know, but, but, uh, the, but the, you know, it, it, it takes someone like Jordan Peterson. I mean, the reason I have, I started the Wednesday lecture theories and continue with them is, 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 is because I want to take up issues that the part, culture wars have in some way poisoned, mm -hmm. um, and, and, and say, look, that you it's it's not as though there's never any truth in in both in you know the different things that are being said uh, in the culture wars. I mean, it's not as though there's nothing to be said for mm. someone saying, "Look, Western civilization is constantly under attack and it's time to defend it." I mean, there, it, uh, what, 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 but the, the point is to try to extract what is what what there is to be said there, and the same with with Jordan 
Peterson. And, and, but at the same time, to expose, in, let's say in the case of Jordan Peterson, how crude his arguments about evolutionary theory are. He bangs on about cultural relativism, not much better than the writers of Quadrant, for example. Mm. Uh, you know, this but, whole assumption that society as it is is how it should be, it's peculiar. Yeah, but, but, it's, not, but it's not as though the, the – look, if you are asked if, – if you're to ask someone like Jordan Peterson and certainly the writers of the continent, well, okay, what, what, what do you think is the alternative to cultural relativism? I mean, what do you think truth comes to in these kinds of discussions? They wouldn't have a clue what to say. No, I know, just – I mean, the, the assertion that, say – you know, you were talking earlier about, um, you know, you have um, a Muslim uh, Pakistani pal um, who says, I am a child of the West. And you No, know, I said it. Oh, I you said, said it. I said it to her. Yeah, you're uh, such yeah. an asshole, which is why I adore you, um, inter alia. Um, but, I mean, you but know. That's why I said, but that's, that's why I brought up the thing about how fundamental it is to my sense of who I am that I live in this kind of continuous present. Yeah. That that is that is shaped by yeah. Plato and like and also Kant shaped and, uh, by um, the supreme like the material supremacy of the West. Like you know, we went to universities in this nation because um, you you know because we could. You know, the West was this imperial, very productive force that began to produce knowledge at a certain time, and you and I in you know, to different degrees, got to participate in that. Um, but, you know, just when I was sort of thinking about this dead philosopher and thinking, well, why aren't these people, you know, why isn't Quadrant actually doing obituaries for great philosophers that we've lost and stuff? And what does Western philosophy mean? I mean, you know, it means Edward Said, right? It means what? Edward Said. Like... Um, Orientalism, right? Like um, decolonization um, studies. How Western is that? Wouldn't exist without the West. It's argued in a Western tradition. Um, and, you know, for whatever problems you may have with decolonization, I mean, Orientalism is a fantastic book. Um, and, you know, there's so many examples which, you know, it's just like, well, this is the inevitable byproduct of life in the West, life dominated by the West, um, you know, academic um, structures being Western, uh, you know, it's a culture, it is the culturally imperial force. And there's many subaltern philosophers, of course, who say, well, yes, of course, I'm writing in a Western tradition. And so all these things are Western. And as ashamed as one might be, you know, uh, of being Western and, you know, realising that all Western traditions were exported basically everywhere and at what cost, you still have to say, well, there's some good shit that's happened, right? And Yeah, but, but that's why, I mean, when, 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 when I said to the, um, this, this very, very dear friend of mine in a discussion, look, I'm a child of the West, and she said, what, well, what the hell does that mean and why did you feel the need to say it? Which which took me back, and I had to think about that. Uh, but that's why I, 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 that's why I, I said, look, who, if you you ask me who intellectually I am, uh, who morally I am, insofar as it, um, in, well, morally I am very largely 
the son of Romulus Gator and Hora, but mm. but 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 also in so far as my thought. father to daughters, uh, in, in, in far husband as, to Yale. <laughs> that, that, that's absolutely true. But in so in so far as thinking about these things goes, then then um, it, it's been shaped by these people that I mentioned. So I would rather just say. In in any particular discussion with someone who 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 wants to say that I'm a white Western such and such, I say this is I am. These are the people who matter to me. These are the people I think about. I would also argue that these are the people who should be taught in philosophy courses, uh, not to the exclusion of a lot of others. But so I I I I I I don't want to have to say anymore. I'm a child of the West. I say these these are the these are the people who've shaped my thought. This is how I will answer a question. I mean, no, if if you if you want to say, for example, when I first went to the law school, I because mean, I'm not a, a, a lawyer, you know, but I'm in in the law school here or as a professorial fellow. <laughs> no, I can't imagine you as a barrister. But, but, You'd uh, argue both sides anyway, at once. So I, I offered the seminar to these these postgrad students, and the the, the they, they, on the concept of dignity, as it's used when people talk about inannual dignity or the dignity of the person or the dignity of man or whatever, as it occurs in preambles to international law, I said, I find this a puzzling concept. I want to talk about it. And now immediately they said, well, what's your methodology? And I said, well, I don't know if I've got a methodology. Oh, you must have a methodology. Everybody has a methodology. I said, well, I well, well, I think I don't. Uh, it, it, it's true there are philosophers who who've influenced me, uh, and I could tell you tell you why, but I suspect you wouldn't understand anyhow because you have to be inward with it and thought a long time about why someone like Wittgenstein should matter to me or why, etc., uh, etc. Et uh, but but it, but in the end, uh, uh, rather than saying I'm an analytical philosopher or I'm a Western philosopher, I would say I'm a philosopher influenced by these. And uh, I'm open to someone saying I should read more Derrida. Uh, and then I'll say why. And uh, they'll, 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 if someone presses on you that you sh should read more such and such, then it's a reasonable question if you've got a lot to be reading to ask why. And then it's reasonable for you to think, well, they've given me a good reason to read Derrida, or they haven't given me a good reason to read Derrida. The, the reason is in your pardoc text, I believe. There is nothing outside the text, which Ray Gator here on Knackers and the Vag has basically just admitted he's a man made by the texts no, of no, the no. past. No, no, no. He, he is your Reader's Digest <laughs> of Western philosophy. No. Um, thank you so much oh, thank uh, you. for popping around for a chat. Um, Ray, before you go, are you able to tell us about the next book you're working on? Oh, well, I'm working Maybe? on uh, Yeah, I'm working on two books that I... The, but tell me the, about the fun one. Oh, the fun one. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's... Uh, a book about people who've really mattered to me in my, in my life, not not uh, people I've known, not just writers. Uh, and um, I'm going to call it. Um, I, I mean, some of them are, are, were well-known philosophers, uh, and and some are people entirely unknown. Like my my father-in-law, for example, my primary school teacher. Uh, 
um, some friends, uh, Robert Mann's in it, for example. Uh, um, and I'm, I'm going to call it um, uh, Portraits, uh, Portraits in Love and Gratitude. Thank you so much for joining us, us me. Um, goodbye, you, as ever. Email address is helen at badhostess.com. I do have a Patreon page. They, those crowd funds, they paid for this afternoon's or this morning's, whatever time you're listening to, crowd food. I thank you and uh, until next week uh, or next time. Where we will join, I believe, uh, Professor Tony Birch. Oh, more professors. More professors. It's getting Tony <laughs> in here. That was Nagas and the Badge. Bye. Okay.